Welcome to the weekly GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. We're continuing in our year-long series on Nehemiah called Renovation, Rebuilding for Purpose. This week, Senior Pastor Mark Rader speaks on the lengthy prayer in Chapter 9, which recalls how God has always enacted, blessed and intervened for the benefit of Israel and the fulfilment of His promises. Israel responds, recognising that the only way they will be successful or experience good in future is if God continues to provide and intervene for them. Our reading today is from uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 and I'm reading for the New International Version and the heading is The Israelites Confess Their Sins. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood where they were and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenai. They cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniel, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Bethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Amen. A smattering of applause for getting through the names. Absolutely. And everyone said, I'm glad that wasn't me this morning. Yes, thank you, Sue. Uh, Well, we are continuing to follow the story in Ezra and Nehemiah of the events of the seventh month. This seventh month, the month of Tishri in the Hebrew calendar, is what starts for us in uh, chapter 8 of Nehemiah. In chapter 8, we're told on the seventh month came, and the Israelites gathered together on the first day of the seventh month. They asked Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, to read the law of God to them. Uh, You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a look at that passage where everyone, all the men and women and children who could understand gathered together uh, and Ezra read the law and the Levites, some of whom were listed there, uh, began to teach the people so they could understand and they understood the law, were overwhelmed by what they understood and celebrated joyfully because they understood And then reading in the law, they find out or they remembered that they were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast that took place from the 15th day of the seventh month to the 21st day of the seventh month, when the people of Israel were to live in temporary shelters, tents and lean-tos made of branches, to remember the time that they had lived in temporary dwellings in the wilderness when they had been brought out of Egypt. It was a reminder of the provision of God, not only in the wilderness, but also in the fact that it was a harvest festival. So the more immediate reminder of God's provision for them was evident to them as well. And here in chapter 9, we are still in the seventh month. It's the 24th day. It has been quite a month, wouldn't you say? 
for Ezra and Nehemiah and the people. They have really got at it. Our theme for uh, Nehemiah is renovation, rebuilding for purpose. Uh, and part of the reason we chose this theme and this passage and this text is that the, there's kind of a couple of different types of renovation taking place. There's the renovation of the wall, which has already been completed and was an important part of the story. But chapters 8, 9, and 10 really remind us that there is more going on here than the renovation of a wall. That This is more than the report of an infrastructure project. That there's also a restoration of the heart. And that the people have turned to God and they are seeking to obey the law. And now they gather together to pray. Uh, and the heading, which Sue kind of mentioned, the Israelites confess their sins. Normally, I'm a big fan of the headings that our translators put in these, uh, in these places. They're helpful titles. They're good breaks in the narrative. They tell us what's coming. But here, I'm not actually convinced that this is a helpful title. Now, there is some confession that takes place, right? The people were told spent a quarter of the day in confession and worship. And there is some kind of reference to their sinfulness. But I don't think that that's actually the real focus of this passage or the prayer. And it's important that we get this right for reasons that I hope will become clear as we have a look at this passage today. But there's a few reasons why I don't believe this title, The Israelites Confess Their Sins, is actually what's going on here. Uh, first of all, you notice in the very beginning, verse 1, they gather together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Now, those things, right, the fasting, which couldn't have taken very long because the Festival of Tabernacles finished on the 21st. That was a really festive time, not inappropriate at all to fast. So they may have been fasting for one, two, or three days. They're wearing sackcloth, a kind of the rough Hessian kind of material that's uncomfortable. And the dust in their hair on their heads was to symbolize the humble circumstances they found themselves in. And while these things, fasting and sackcloth and ashes or dust, was associated with um, repentance, it's more commonly simply an act of mourning. Uh, we've seen an outpouring of grief, have we not, over the last couple of days? Right? And whenever we see an outpouring of grief, we have to ask ourselves, why are they grieving? So if I showed you an image of some gates in front of a grand palace, and there were piles of flowers and notes and candles lit, you would go, something's happened here, right? There, there's an outpouring of grief. Those signs tell us that there's grieving going on. But then we would need to know what are they grieving. The people here are indeed grieving. But it's not their sinfulness that is front and center in their minds. This is also evident because we're in the seventh month. If we had time, I'd take you to num uh, sorry, Leviticus chapter 23, uh, where the people would have read in the law about the Feast of Tabernacles, the festival of the seventh month from the 15th to the 21st. But what's interesting about the seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three festivals that took place. The author has not mentioned the other two. The first takes place on the first day of the month, and it is the Festival of Trumpets. It became the Jewish New Year. Sound the trumpets. It's a day to do no ordinary work. It's the New Year. And then on the 10th of the seventh month, the 10th day of the seventh month, was a little festival called the Day of Atonement. You may have heard of it. 
Uh, it's the day when the high priest went into the most holy place and performed particular rituals in the most holy place to atone for or cover the sins of the people for the entire previous year. It's a fairly elaborate ceremony. And it seems to me that if you're going to have a group of people confessing their sins, that would be the day to do it. With the second festival of the month, not the third festival of the month. You follow me? But the third and most compelling reason why I don't think confession is front and center is actually the prayer. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open to it. I want to read through the prayer and kind of give you some color commentary along the way. If you have the Version Bible app, it's uh, in the, uh, the, the events section. So you can actually look that up and kind of follow along if you'd like. But the prayer itself is quite interesting. Uh, we're not told who prays it. Uh, all the Levites are standing around, so it might have been one of them. Ezra and Nehemiah, we're not told where they are. You'd expect one of them to lead us in this prayer, but we don't know. And we also don't know where the people are. We're told that they stood in their place and listened to the law and confessed and worshipped. We don't know whether this is the temple, whether this is still the water gate, but they've gathered together and this is the prayer. So I want to read it through and, as I said, give you some color commentary along the way. But I want to draw your attention to the focus of the prayer. So here we go. Uh, chapter 9 of Nehemiah, starting in verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth, all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So they've started in the grandest scale possible, right? Uh, the one that we're praying to is no localized, small, petty demigod. No, the one that we are addressing is the one true God, the only God. The next section, though, makes the connection between this universal creator and the people. And it begins a selective history of the people of Israel. It's fascinating to note what they have kept in and what they have left out. Finding what's left out is harder because it's not in here, so it's harder to see. But I'll draw your attention to it as we go. All right? So verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. A familiar story for the people of Israel. Going back to the, uh, the patriarch, the founding father of their nation. Not of their religion, but of their nation. The one that they drew on as their ancestor, their first ancestor. But if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you might know that there are a few promises missing here. The Lord promised Abraham that he would bless him and that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed and that he would have innumerable descendants and that those descendants would inherit the land that Abraham was walking in. Interesting, isn't it? That the author chooses one of those promises and it's the land Remember, they've just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, that a festival of the land, 
a festival of in-gathering, when they remember God's provision for them in the harvest, a time when they remember when God brought them out of Egypt to bring them to the land. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt, another classic story of the people of Israel. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. Again, classic story of God's provision for his people. And notice the emphasis on God hearing their cry at the Red Sea and then providing for them in the wilderness, this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. I mean, an important part of the story, but it's not the most important part of that story. If I asked you to just kind of talk to the people next to you and list whatever you could remember as the most important things of the story of the Exodus, I don't know that the pillar of cloud and fire would necessarily make the top five. I mean, it's in there, maybe top 10, maybe top 20. It's a detail in the story, but it's not emphasized in Exodus. But here it certainly is because it's mentioned again later in the prayer. The provision continues in verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. And have you noticed what's missing in this prayer so far? No confession of sin. You notice that? We're a solid, like, we're solidly into this prayer. And the people haven't gotten anywhere near confessing anything apart from how great God is. And what have they focused on? His promises of the land and his provision to them. Now, verse 16. We have a reference to sin. Oh, good. Maybe the title is justified. But watch what happens. Watch how this turns. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. That sounds like confession, doesn't it? An acknowledgement that we didn't do the right thing in the past. But watch what happens. But you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. If you want to compare that to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it's God's own statement of who he is, that he is the compassionate and gracious God, forgiving thousands. This this is his own statement. Therefore, the prayer continues, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. 
You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. We are now 20 verses into this prayer. And there's been one recognition that our ancestors failed to obey you. Is that the focus of this prayer? No. It's the faithful provision of God. In the next section, we have a little bit of a, a balancing act. They mention their failure, but then they return again to the faithfulness of God. And it kind of moves a little bit more quickly. But they, in verse 26, were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then they abandoned, you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples, but in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There's reference to sin, but it's to highlight God's faithfulness, right? Look at the next verse, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God. Ah, here, here, we actually have the start of the prayer. Everything else has been preamble. Everything else has been leading up to this. The people have been reciting this history, which has failed to mention David, has failed to mention the temple, has failed to mention the selection of Jerusalem as the place where God's name will dwell. He's kind of driven through this history of God's faithfulness, contrasting his faithfulness with the people's lack thereof, but ultimately to point again to God's faithfulness. And now we get to their appeal. Here it is. This is what they have on their hearts. This is why they are mourning. This is why they've fasted. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. This is their first request. 
Everything else has been preambled. This is the request. Do not allow this hardship to seem trifling in your eyes. What hardship? Well, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, speaking of the exile, speaking of the return, speaking of moving from a free country, an independent country under one king, to now being a small province in a much larger empire. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You've acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest, which they have just celebrated in the Feast of Ingathering, goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Taxes are high. Our political leaders don't care. And we are a long way from the people that you promised that we would be. That's why they are mourning. They have just spent seven days joyfully remembering God's provision, both in the past, but also in the present, and then have taken that provision to recognize that there's a big gap between the promises that God has for his people and all that they will become and what they are experiencing. And so they gather together to mourn that. And what they do is not confess their sins. What they do is they appeal to God's faithfulness to act again. Oh Lord, you are faithful. Let me give you just a few examples off the top of my head. You made these promises to Abraham and you kept them. And you made promises to the people and you provided for them. And even though we failed, you always were faithful. And we failed and you were faithful. And we failed and you were faithful. Would you please be faithful again? Because if God doesn't act on their behalf, nothing will change. There are no political alliances that will make things better. There are no economic policies that will change things for the better. The only thing that will change their circumstance is if God does something. Do they confess their sins? Not really. Now, of course, whenever we focus on God's faithfulness, whatever faithfulness we can muster up does tend to lose some of its shine, wouldn't you say? Now, we can say with Paul pretty easily, once we think about God's great faithfulness, it's pretty easy for us to say that everything that I might count to my advantage is rubbish, right? 
Because compared to God's great faithfulness over generations, his compassion and his mercy, all that I can muster up, all that we can muster up is, well, it's okay. Which reminds us that what happens amongst the people of God, whether it be thousands of years ago in Jerusalem or in Kirui today, right now, is due to God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. I don't believe it's too much of a stretch to draw an analogy between the people of Israel gathered in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day and us. Because our history is exactly the same. Isn't it? Sure, the history of Gaimia Baptist Church only stretches for about 70 years. But it's a history of God's faithfulness, isn't it? From the provision of the vision to start a Sunday school using whatever resources were necessary, even if it meant rinsing out a chook shed for Sundays, the vision to be a light on the highway, the provision of God in leaders and men and women of courage who took opportunities that didn't seem like much and stepped faithfully into them, and those ministries became something, Christian surfers, Bike for Bibles, Jesus Racing, Olive Tree Media, a little thing called Tea Gardens Cottage that became Southern Community Welfare, that became Hopefield. All of this has so little to do with us and our faithfulness and so much to do with God's faithfulness, doesn't it? Our story, the story of any group of God's people, is a story of God's faithfulness. And as we come to the day of discernment, because you knew I was going to get there, as we come to focus next Saturday to listen to what God is leading us into, this prayer is on my heart. This prayer. There are other prayer points. Happy for you to pray through them. Thank you for those of you who have been faithfully praying for these 40 days. Thank you to those of you who registered. <laughs> but this prayer is on my heart. Because ultimately, if God does not act faithfully, nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. We might have a really fancy five-year plan. I'm not particularly interested in that. Like, I'm really not. Anyone can come up with that. Only God can do something amazing in our midst. This prayer is on my heart. It's no accident that we've been going through Nehemiah and going through these passages in the lead up to next week. Because I do believe there is an analogy between the people of God then and the people of God now. And this is a powerful reminder of where our focus needs to be. Not on our plans or on our faithfulness or even our sinfulness, but on the work and faithfulness of God that he might do something in our midst. So I'm going to assume that you're with me on this one and I'm going to ask you to stand. And I would like to pray a prayer that is a little bit like this one, that God would be faithful in our lives and 
in our life as a community of faith. So would you please join me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed faithful. We've been reminded of it uh, this whole last hour as we've sung about your goodness as our Father, as we've sung about your love for us, as we've sung about your ability to transform, to utterly transform our lives. We've been reminded of your faithfulness as we celebrated communion. And in the light of your great faithfulness, our faithfulness seems a bit diminished. And indeed, there are times when we have failed to live up to all that you have called us to, where we have not taken courage, where we have turned away from you and chased the desires of our own hearts. And that is all true, and we do repent of that. But today, we want to focus on your faithfulness to us, particularly here in this community of faith. Your faithfulness over 70 years of bringing men and women to be part of this community of faith who love you and want to see your kingdom come. Men and women who are willing to take risks for you, who are willing to listen to you, to put themselves on the line in order that people might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and have their lives changed by him. We thank you for all the evidence of your faithfulness in our life as a community of faith, in our lives as individuals. For each one of us could point to moments and times when you have been faithful, where you have been good, where you have been righteous. I pray that you would bring those to mind. And for each one of us, as we stand here before you as your community of faith, both here on site and those who are joining us digitally, we pray now, our great and awesome God, that you would act faithfully again. Because without your activity on our behalf, nothing will happen. We might be busy, but we're not interested in being busy. We want to be about the work of the kingdom. And I pray that as we lead up to next Saturday, one day in a long process of trying to discern your will, that your faithfulness to us might be front and center in our hearts and minds. Lord, you have been faithful, you are faithful, and you will continue to be so. We pray that you would act on our behalf, that you would lead and guide us, that you would resource us, that you would grant to us all that we require in order that we might more fully participate with your grand plans to restore and renew all things in Christ Jesus through the enabling presence and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people say. We pray that this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged to pray and rely on God, and blessed your life today.